calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 46. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. One common type of modern-day urban legend folklore developing today is the fast food horror mythos. You've all heard them. I could make Drabble News stories for weeks about them. The guy who found a partially fried chicken head in his McNuggets, parasitic larva in the Whopper, used condom in the Wendy's wrap, cockroach eggs, rat feces, okay, I'll stop. And I'll let Faith Gardner's story take it from here. We bring you Sour Cream Scream by Faith Gardner. It was Mary Astor's last trip to Taco Bell. Biting the burrito and tasting the moldy sour cream, she swallowed the bite in order to scream. She screamed all the way to the hospital, through paperwork and examination. Mary's face was wrenched in terror, and the sound was blood-curdling. Finally, a whiteboard was brought in that read, You are going to be fine. Mary's screaming ceased. She went stiff, fell backward, and died. The doctors blamed an undiagnosed heart murmur, but only Mary knew the truth. Her screeching phantom still haunts some Taco Bells, floating around and waving burritos at onlookers. Impertinent youth, such as myself, probably need to be reminded that Mary Astor was a famous American actress who started her career in silent movies. Coincidence? Perhaps. 
moldy fast food, circular breathing, and ghosts. If you can write something that weird in exactly 100 words, you've got a Drabble story. Send it in to Drabblecast at yahoo.com. Today's story is called The She-Wolf by Saki. Saki was the pen name for British author Hector Hugh Monroe, who was born in Burma in 1870 and died in 1916 during World War I. If you haven't read any Saki, you should. They're all free online in the public domain, and they're fantastic. While Mark Twain and Oscar Wilde were busy writing famous stories that we would all have to end up reading in middle school, Saki was writing great stories about hyenas attacking butlers and ferrets becoming deities. Check out Drabblecast 19, Sredni Vashtar, for a little taste of this Drabblecast forefather. So, without further ado, The She-Wolf by Saki. Leonard Bilsiter was one of those people who have failed to find this world attractive or interesting, and who have sought compensation in an unseen world of their own experience or imagination, or invention. Children do that sort of thing successfully, but children are content to convince themselves and do not vulgarize their beliefs by trying to convince other people. Leonard Bilsiter's beliefs were for the few, that is to say, anyone who would listen to him. His dabblings in the unseen might not have carried him beyond the customary platitudes of the drawing-room visionary if accident had not reinforced his stock-in-trade of mystical lore. In company with a friend who was interested in a Ural mining concern, he had made a trip across Eastern Europe at a moment when the Great Russian Railway Strike was developing from a threat to reality. Its outbreak caught him on the return journey, somewhere on the further side of Perm, and it was while waiting for a couple of days at a wayside station in a state of suspended locomotion that he made the acquaintance of a dealer in harness and metalware, who profitably whiled away the tedium of the long halt by initiating his English travelling companion in a fragmentary system of folklore that he picked up from some trans-bicle traders and natives. Leonard returned to his home circle garrulous about his Russian strike experiences, but oppressively reticent about certain dark mysteries, which he alluded to under the resounding title of Siberian Magic. The reticence wore off in a week or two under the influence of an entire lack of general curiosity, and Leonard began to make more detailed allusions to the enormous powers which this new esoteric force, to use his own description of it, conferred on the initiated few who knew how to wield it. His aunt, Cecilia Hoops, who loved sensation perhaps rather better than she loved uh, the truth, gave him as clamorous an advertisement as anyone could wish for, by retailing an account of how he had turned a vegetable marrow into a wood pigeon before her very eyes. As a manifestation of the possession of supernatural powers, the story was discounted in some quarters by the respect accorded to Mrs. Hoop's powers of imagination. However divided opinion might be on the question of Leonard's status as a wonder worker, 
or a charlatan, he certainly arrived at Mary Hampton's house party with a reputation for preeminence in one or the other of those professions, and he was not disposed to shun such publicity as might fall to his share. Esoteric forces and unusual powers figured largely in whatever conversation he or his aunt had a share in, and his own performances, past and potential, were the subject of mysterious hints and dark avowals. "'I wish you would turn me into a wolf, Mr. Bilsiter,' said his hostess at a luncheon the day after his arrival. "'My dear Mary,' said Colonel Hampton. I never knew you had a craving in that direction. A she-wolf, of course, continued Miss Hampton. It would be far too confusing to change one's sex as well as one's species at a moment's neutral. I don't think we should be jesting on these subjects, said Leonard. Oh, I'm not jesting. I'm being quite serious, I assure you. Only don't do it today. We only have eight available bridge players, and it would break up one of our tables. Tomorrow, we shall be a larger party. Tomorrow night, after dinner. Uh, yeah. Uh, in our present imperfect understanding of these hidden forces, I think one should approach them with humbleness rather than mockery, observed Leonard with such severity that the subject was forthwith dropped. Clovis Sangrail had sat unusually silent during the discussion on the possibilities of Siberian magic. After lunch, he sidetracked Lord Pabham into the comparative seclusion of the billiard room and delivered himself of a searching question. Let me ask you something. Have you such a thing as a she-wolf in your collection of wild animals? A she-wolf, a moderately good temper? Lord Pabham considered. Well, there's Louisa, he said. A rather fine specimen of the timber wolf. I got her two years ago in exchange for some arctic foxes. Uh, well, most of my animals get to be fairly tame before they've been with me very long. I think I can say Louisa has an angelic temper. Uh, well, as far as she-wolves go... What do you ask? I was wondering whether you would lend her to me for tomorrow night, said Clovis, with the careless solicitude of one who borrows a collar stud or a tennis racket. Tomorrow night? Yeah, wolves are nocturnal animals, so late hours won't hurt her, said Clovis, with the air of one who has taken everything into consideration. One of your men could bring her over from Pabham Park after dusk. With a little help, we ought to be able to smuggle her into the conservatory. At the same moment, Mary Hampton makes an unobtrusive exit. Lord Pabham stared at Clovis for a moment in pardonable bewilderment. Then his face broke into a wrinkled network of laughter. <laughs> oh, that's your game, is it? You're going to do a little Siberian magic on your own account. And is uh, Miss Hampton willing to be a fellow conspirator? Mary's pledged to see me through with it, if you will guarantee Louisa's temper. I'll answer for Louisa, said Lord Pabham. 
By the following day, the house party had swollen to larger proportions, and Bilsiter's instinct for self-advertisement expanded duly under the stimulant of an increased audience. At dinner that evening, he held forth at length on the subject of unseen forces and untested powers, and his flow of impressive eloquence continued unabated while coffee was being served in the drawing-room preparatory to a general migration to the card-room. His aunt ensured a respectful hearing for his utterances, but her sensation-loving soul hankered after something more dramatic than mere vocal demonstration. "'Won't you do something to convince them of your powers, Leonard?' she pleaded. "'Change something into another shape. He can, you know, if he only chooses to,' she informed the company. "'Oh, do,' said Mavis Pellington earnestly, and her request was echoed by nearly everyone present. Even those who were not open to conviction were perfectly willing to be entertained by an exhibition of amateur conjuring.' Leonard felt that something tangible was expected of him. "'Has anyone present,' he asked, "'got a three-penny bit or some small object of no particular value?' "'You're surely not going to make coins disappear, or something primitive of that sort,' said Clovis contemptuously. "'I think it very unkind for you not to carry out my suggestion of turning me into a wolf.' said Mary Hampton, as she crossed over to the conservatory to give her macaws their usual tribute from the dessert dishes. I, I have already warned you of the danger of treating these powers in a mocking spirit, said Leonard solemnly. I don't believe you can do it, laughed Mary provocatively from the conservatory. I dare you to do it if you can. I defy you to turn me into a wolf. As she said this, she was lost to view behind a clump of azaleas. "'Miss Hampton,' began Leonard with increased solemnity, but he got no further. A breath of chill air seemed to rush across the room, and at the same time the macaws broke forth in ear-splitting screams. "'What on earth is the matter with those confounded birds, Mary?' exclaimed Colonel Hampton. At the same moment, an even more piercing scream from Mavis Pellington stampeded the entire company from their seats. In various attitudes of helpless horror or instinctive defense, they confronted the evil-looking gray beast that was peering at them from amid a setting of fern and azalea. Miss Hoops was the first to recover from the general chaos of fright and bewilderment. Leonard! She screamed shrilly to her nephew. Turn it back into Mrs. Hampton at once! It may fly at us any moment! Turn it back! I don't know how to, faltered Leonard, who looked more scared and horrified than anyone. What? shouted Colonel Hampton. You've taken the abominable libertown of turning my wife into a wolf, and now you stand there and calmly say you can't turn her back again? To do strict justice to Leonard, calmness was not a distinguishing feature of his attitude at the moment. I assure you, I, I did not turn Miss Hampton into a wolf. Uh, nothing was farther from my intentions, he protested. Then where is she, and how came that animal into the conservatoire? demanded the colonel. 
Now, now, of course we must accept your assurances that you didn't turn Miss Hampton into a wolf, said Clovis politely, but you will agree that appearances are against you. Are we to have all of these recriminations with that beast standing there ready to tear us to pieces? wailed Mavis indignantly. Lord Parham, you know a great deal about wild beasts, suggested Colonel Hampton. Mm, well, the wild beasts that I've been accustomed to, said Lord Parham, have come with proper credentials from well-known dealers, or they've been bred in my own menagerie. I have never before been confronted with an animal that walks unconcernedly out of an azalea bush, leaving a charming and popular hostess unaccounted for. As far as one can judge from outward characteristics, though, he continued, it has the appearance of a well-grown female of the northern timber wolf, a variety of the common species Garnus lupus. Oh, never mind its Latin name! screamed Mavis as the beast came a step or two further into the room. Oh, can't you entice it away with food and shut it up where it can't do any harm? Now, now, now listen here, if it really is Miss Hampton who, who just had a really good dinner, I don't suppose food will appeal to it very strongly, said Clovis. Leonard, beseeched Miss Hoops tearfully. Even if this is none of your doing, can't you use your great powers to turn this dreadful beast into something harmless before it bites us all? A rabbit or something? Now, now, I don't suppose Colonel Hampton would care to have his wife turned into a succession of fancy animals as, as though we were playing a round game with her, interposed Clovis. I absolutely forbid it, thundered the Colonel. Most wolves that I've had anything to do with have been inordinately fond of sugar, said Lord Pabham. If you like, I'll try the effect on this one. He took a piece of sugar from the saucer of his coffee cup and flung it to the expectant Louisa, who snapped it in mid-air. There was a sigh of relief from the company. A wolf that ate sugar when it might at least have been employed in tearing macaws to pieces had already shed some of its terrors. The sigh deepened to a gasp of thanksgiving when Lord Pabham decoyed the animal out of the room by a pretended largesse of further sugar. There was an instant rush to the vacated conservatory. There was no trace of Miss Hampton except the plate containing the macaw's supper. "'The door's locked on the inside!' exclaimed Clovis, who had deftly turned the key as he affected to test it. Everyone turned towards Billister. "'If you haven't turned my wife into a wolf,' said Colonel Hampton, "'will you kindly explain why she disappeared to, "'since she obviously could not have gone through a locked door? "'I will not press you for an explanation "'of how a North American timber wolf suddenly appeared in the conservatoire, "'but I think I have some right to inquire what has become of Miss Hampton.' Billister's reiterated disclaimer was met with a general murmur of impatient disbelief. "'I refuse to stay another hour under this roof,' declared Mavis Pellington. "'If our hostess has really vanished out of human form,' said Miss Hoops, 
None of the ladies of the party can very well remain. I absolutely decline to be chaperoned by a wolf. It's actually a she-wolf, said Clovis soothingly. The correct etiquette to be observed under the unusual circumstances received no further elucidation. The sudden entry of Mary Hampton deprived the discussion of its immediate interest. "'Someone has mesmerized me!' she exclaimed crossly. "'I found myself in the game larder, of all places, being fed with sugar by Lord Pabham!' I hate being mesmerized, and the doctor has forbidden me to touch sugar. The situation was explained to her, as far as it permitted of anything that could be called explanation. Then you really did turn me into a wolf, Mr. Bilsiter, she exclaimed excitedly. But Leonard had burned that boat in which he might now have embarked on a sea of glory. He could only shake his head feebly. All right. It was I who took that liberty, said Clovis. You see, I happen to have lived for a couple years in northeastern Russia, and I have more than a tourist's acquaintance with the magic craft of that region. One does not care to speak about these strange powers, but once in a way, when one hears a lot of nonsense being talked about them, one is tempted to show what Siberian magic can accomplish, uh, well, in the hands of someone who really understands it. I, <laughs> I yielded to that temptation. May I have some brandy? Uh, the effort has left me rather faint. If Leonard Bilsiter could at that moment have transformed Clovis into a cockroach and then have stepped on him, he would gladly have performed both operations. Well, that was our story. I hope you liked it. That story is from a collection of short stories by Saki called Beasts and Super Beasts. I mean, how cool was this guy? Feedback for episode 40, Marbles, by Ann Sauer. Some people didn't care for it, more people did, but pretty much everyone wanted to go home afterwards and hug their cat. Without giving too much of the story away, I will say that there was some good discussion about character motivation and psychological disorders. Also, a lot of positive feedback on Ann's travel story, Shark Attack. Philippa said... I have to say I liked shark attack drabble more than marbles, but that said, I liked marbles a lot too. Evil children stories always get the thumbs up. Hell, the real things creep me out enough as it is. That's why I have cats. Straw Man said, I too found the plot pretty disgusting, but when adjusted for by the fact that it's a drabble cast, who can complain about that? Looking past that, however, I must say, I think marbles is the tightest, best written drabble cast story yet. And that leads me into the final portion of today's show, the People's Choice Drabblecast Awards. Our one-year anniversary is coming up in late February, and we thought it would be neat to honor the stories that you listeners really enjoyed. Currently in our forums, I have listed the top stories, in terms of feedback and reaction, that we have featured on Drabblecast. If you would like to nominate another story that isn't listed, you can do so as a registered member of our forum. On the site, as a registered member, you can also cast a vote as to which nominated story you like the best. Beginning in February, all stories but the top three will be culled away, and listeners will have a second vote. 
The winner will receive a trophy that will make you scream longer than eating moldy sour cream burritos. So go to Drabblecast.org and sign up. It only takes a second. And vote. While you're there, comment on today's story, and if you feel particularly creative, submit a piece in our other contest going on, the Nigerian Scam Spam Email Competition. You can find the guidelines to that also on our forums. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can share it with whoever you want for free, but you can't charge for it or change it, even with Siberian magic. We rely on your generous donations to keep things going and to pay our authors. Please donate via our button on the website to support the Drabblecast. Our staff is made up of Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and myself, Norm Sherman, reminding you to feed the macaws. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.